Hello, and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 100. This interview is with Cliff Fluet, partner at Lewis Silken Law Firm, specialized in media and entertainment law. Lewis Silken is clearly not your average law firm either, with the slogan, a rather more human law firm. In this podcast with Cliff, we talk about the state of the music business, the ad agency business model, and key issues such as the ongoing Samsung Apple patent warfare, managing privacy online, and using social media as an executive. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Today, I am in sunny London in spring, and met a man uh, who went to South by Southwest this year, and we had, I had the great fortune to sit beside him on the plane, and this started the long conversation. So I wanted to pursue this and have a wonderful podcast with you. So Cliff, tell us who you are, what you do, and uh, how would you describe your mindset? So my name's Cliff Fluey. I'm um, By day, I'm the partner of a law firm called Lewis Silken, and I specialize in digital media and brand entertainment. Um, and also, the other half of my time, I run an advisory business called Eleven, helping businesses navigate the world of digital media, film, and sport, areas that have been primed for disruption in the past few years, and I help guide companies through how to deal with disruption and discontinuities. Beautiful thing. Well, I mean, how do you manage to be a lawyer and an entrepreneur, almost? Well, I'm, I'm one of the few that thinks that the two aren't mutually exclusive, um, but... <laughs> <laughs> but also as well, um, as well as qualifying uh, far too many years ago than I care to mention, um, I practice law mainly in the majority of my career as an in-house lawyer. So as a lawyer in commerce, working at the sharp end with companies and CEOs and was on the board of a major P- music PLC and got to see corporate governance issues. So I do have an interesting fusion of having a commercial mindset and a legal mindset and seeing how the two work in tandem. Well, definitely a fusion would be a good word for you, Cliff. So um, one of the things I wanted to focus in on since we went by South By, which, of course, is not just music, but also is a big component of it, is to talk about the music business. It's, It's always been at the forefront of this digital transformation and is in constant flux. How would you describe the state of music these days, the business of music? Well, I think the business of music has um, achieved an interesting position. Um, I have one of my own pet theories that um, the way that businesses react to the death of a business model mirror the stages of grief. So shock, denial, angle, bargaining, acceptance. And um, we're at a slow point of acceptance that many of the things that the music industry tried to roll back, ubiquitous access to the celestial jukebox, which I first heard someone talk to about in 1996 Mm. when I first started at a record company, is now finally here. We're streaming. And streaming. And again, in mindset and being not... One of the dangers with regard to music or indeed any technology is reducing it to the format and um, reducing the format to the method of delivery. So people will say streaming's always been around. It has been around for a very, very long time, the digital dissemination of content. Creating a contextual format that consumers can really understand, digest in a way that works for them on a device such as an iPod or an iPhone that couldn't have even been countenanced then mm-hmm. is what's allowed that to be unleashed. Mm-hmm. So back to my, my own little uh, aphorism with regard to mm-hmm. what businesses are like, we're now at the point of acceptance 
but it's been a very painful 15, you know, nearly 20 years. Um, and much of that has been spent in denial. Mm-hmm. Much of that has been spent bargaining, thinking that legislative change... Or, or going out of business. Or going out of business or suing the teeth off of people was a way forward. Whereas now we've reached the point that actually, do you want to lean back and collect the money and do what consumers want in a way they want it? Or do you want to have that whole analogue thinking, which is I control the means of production, the method of production, and I will do everything I possibly can to retain that control? Or if I look at music... Uh, it seems I, I can't figure out who's winning. Um, Spotify just—they're still losing forty or so million uh, euros every quarter. Um, most of the industry people I know in music are are hemming and hawing, trying to get profitability. A lot of artists are struggling because there's so much music out there. Um, so who's winning? Well. Um you make a very good observation. You know, the turnover of the big streaming companies is very high, but their profitability is significantly constrained because the rights holders, you know, you'll have several of them around the table, each wanting 75% of the profits, <laughs> um, at least. So when you've got companies that have got the scale of Pandora mm-hmm. not being able to turn a decent profit or their profit margins being eroded by unreasonable, some might say, demands from rights holders... Or you've got companies such as Spotify that have got an alarming growth rate but still not turning a single profit. It's going to be very, very interesting, the issue of sustainability. Um, What we are seeing is that certain areas of the business, live music and merchandise and what I call contextual experiences, you know, one doesn't have to be a huge psychologist to realise the more digital we become and the more disconnected we become, the more that affinity has a greater value over an extended product. So if you look at the models that actually monetize affinity, like a T-shirt, you can now charge 30 quid for a T-shirt at a gig. Mm -hmm. It costs a pound to make. Ask someone to buy a CD, they'll say, hey, even 12 years ago, 13 years ago, oh, my God, it's a rip-off. It only costs a quid to make, so I'm not going to buy that. So in a way, you're saying that it's not the music as we classically call it, it's making the money, but it's, it's everything surrounding the music, whether it's the accessories or the concert Correct. event. And, and, you know, one of the things that we work with our clients is that actually when a discontinuity is hit, you'll realize the thing around the thing is what made the money. In fact, it tended to be the thing you used to give away that has the greatest value. Um, so, for example, when I worked at a record company, you know, coming up to, uh, well, uh, 15, well nearly 20 years ago now, you know, people, let them keep their badges and their fan clubs and their merchandise. We own the album. We'll even let them keep their touring because that's just a marketing cost, right? If you want to look at the degree of pivot and where the money is, it's on all the stuff we used to give away and attribute no value to. The thing that has the greatest unit cost, which is making the record and marketing it, the cost is high, if not higher, You've now got to advertise over more platforms in order to get any share and purchase at all. Mm-hmm. Yet if you look where the profit is, it's in that thing you used to give away. And that, I think, is one of the biggest issues for content companies in this particular issue. The monetization of context over the monetization of content shows one has an alarming degree of growth and the other one shows a massive decrease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you are a content business, you're in trouble. If you're a context business, and some might say LinkedIn and Google and Groupon are contextual businesses, they don't make anything. 
you know, what they do is that they create, house, convene, and monetize. It's those latter businesses that are doing very, very well. Mm. So to answer your question, who in the music industry is doing it? Merch companies, uh, venues, um, direct-to-fan campaigns. The Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead, or um, a company I work with called Pledge Music, where the average transaction on Pledge Music, average, is $57. And what they do is they sell fan experiences. Artists that aren't signed to labels create experiences from we'll write your name on a napkin to you mm-hmm. put you in the liner note to we'll come and do a show to your house being able to give people money which goes towards the creation of their campaigns at a significant profit nobody loses everybody wins it's the entire opposite of a record company it owns one thin right the copyright in, the, in, in a sound recording mm-hmm. biggest cost biggest risk mm. lowest return mm. In terms of music, one of the challenges has been this ripping it off, right? You know, where, where people can share peer-to-peer, which has always existed. It seems, though, that there's... I mean, with the digital, it's become obviously much easier to do, to rip off, to share, to, you know, peer-to-peer. Where are we on the ability for companies actually to track, you know, cookie music so that they know what the, di- the digital rights are and who's, who's using it. Is there, is there like an Uber force out there that's gonna, eventually going to be able to track, like Shazam, in a sense, all music? Well, again, I mean, uh, I would, being a good lawyer, almost attack the basis of the question because <laughs> tracking the use, monitoring the use, be it SoundHound or SoundMouse or Shazam, there are now greater technologies to track down use. But then, then what? You're going to sue the teeth off them, right? You know, um, for me, and again, I'll, I'll reveal the end of my own book. Um, if you realise that when new technologies came in, new platforms came in, the uh, incumbents tried to stop it. Then they tried to overcharge for it, and then when it's seen as a social good or a social need, a form of either legal or voluntary code comes in. So when people started playing music in coffee bars individual composers and writers were up in arms and then a body called PPL was put into place, which meant that anyone could play music in public so long as they got a license. Mm -hmm. The same happened when people put music in broadcast. The same happened when music music was put on satellite. And the last thing, and again, it will happen in some way, shape or form, is if you monetize use, tick, and if you don't monetize use, or you... I'm sorry... um, uh, but it's on a usage basis rather than a per-usage right. basis. Mm-hmm. You and I set up a radio station. We can get a license from Ofcom to play as much music as we want, provided we get a license from PPL. Everyone gets paid. It's tracked, it's owned, it's paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're starting to see this. I mean, you know, in France, for example, um, Google was, uh, some say, ripping off. Other people say hosting huge amounts of news stories um, in Google News. The French journalists were absolutely up in arms. A deal was put in place so that Google could use a certain amount of stuff for free. They put 53 million euro in a fund to allow digital innovation. That's collective licensing. So what I suspect will happen is that you will create these ecosystems. Spotify is one of them. And if you speak to the guys behind Napster, at one point they thought, we will build this platform and surely they'll just figure it all out. Hmm. 
like they did with regard to television. They, unfortunately, the acrimony was so great mm-hmm. that it meant that that couldn't be structured. Mm-hmm. You, one could argue that sort of what's happening with Facebook. I mean, they built the platform, they got the audience, then they figured out how to monetize it afterwards, and it'll ultimately be uh, probably some form of television of the future. Same is happening with regard to YouTube. Then too. It was acquired by um, Google eight years ago, didn't have a model, didn't understand it. Um, one of the heads of the rights bodies in the music industry described it as the greatest engine of copyright theft. And strictly speaking, he was right. Mm-hmm. And for years, they denied they needed a license. And this year, lo and behold, they've gone, got licenses from the content owners and they are rumored to be launching a subscription business whereby it gets monetized and it adds accretive value to the rights holders. Could the same happen in relation to the internet? Could the same happen in relation to ISPs? Could it be that your ISP uh, bundle could cost a few more pounds every year for all the amounts of music? Of course. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do you slice the pie? That's an economic issue. For me, it's not a legal issue. Well, when you look at Netflix, they're having that battle today with um, Comcast or whoever it is, right? Uh, where, where, who's going to win out in that, do you think? Well, again, I mean, the issue with regard to Comcast and Netflix, I mean, a number of people have harumphed about it. But actually, Netflix is so popular, it needs to have more power and more bandwidth in order to be able to carry sure. itself. Right. So but the question is, in a sense, and the fight that I understand is, who... Well, who's, who has more to lose Correct. by not... So who then therefore should pay for the extra bandwidth in order for Netflix to pull through? And it's, it's, it's difficult to know. I mean, again, I mean, there's no simple answer because yeah. Netflix has built a business around a particular price point. Yeah. And one big product. And one huge product. And Comcast's core business, being uh, cable television, is hurting significantly. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing is that most of the laws, they're not about the law. They're actually about business models you know in the digital realm idiots will say well i still read a book therefore print isn't dead and i said no one said that print is dead the business model is Mm dying and it's changing shape Mm -hmm. it is evolving Mm -hmm. and what we are seeing is a failure to tessellate old business models with new business models Mm -hmm. there will always be bookshops there will always be newspapers there'll Mm -hmm. always be law firms there'll always be nail files but do you want to own a, a, a bookshop right now? Personally, no. <laughs> so, um, Cliff, when, when we, we spoke before, speaking of business models, the topic of ad agency business or the model of ad agencies was a good one where we riffed on that. And um, you know, I've had an opportunity to look up close at what agencies are doing. I'd love to have you expand on, on why you think the, the agency business model is in such need of change and where, what do you think it should need to do? Well, again, it, it's very difficult to talk about the ad agency business because I'm concerned about as being reductive as people who talk about the music business. Right, good point. The music business is the record business, it's the music publishing business, it's the live business, it's the artist business, it's the touring business. These are all complicated ecosystems within each other. Mm-hmm. Same is true for marketing services. And I'm in danger of you know, some being taken to say, you mean the same for a PR agency as a media buying agency, right. experiential agency, and all of that sort of stuff. So to that extent, you know, if I'm at all referencing ad agencies, I'm talking about marketing services in the entire industry. Mm-hmm. What I would say about the music industry is that people thought 15, 20 years ago we were a special case. 
right? It was pony-held numpties right. who were too greedy, who didn't get digital, and they deserved to die. They mm-hmm. deserved to die. Well, I mean, I, to be able to add one of my things to that flair is that for years they would just change the format and then sell us again the white album one more time on a new format. So I think there was also a, li- a, a my feeling is from a consumer standpoint a little bit of fed upness with having to buy the white album or one more format because the music industry said work. Part of it said, well, we need to have a new way. Well, if I could be terribly pointy, some could level exactly the same charge to the likes of Unilever or P&G, who take Fairy Liquid and they put it on this, and now with blue crystals, now with red crystals, <laughs> now with... So it's not a unique point that it comes to the music industry and the whole rebadging. But what had happened with regard to the music industry was that at the point a new technological format had come, a new profit bubble came. Mm-hmm. So the view was when the internet came along, it'd just be, oh, right, it's a new thing now, right. we'll make more money. Right. Then what happened was a form of dissolving cannibalism. Right. It was more acidic than that. Mm-hmm. But with regard to marketing services, I think that the point about the music industry is that I think most people now will accept we weren't a special case, we just got hit first. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that actually there seems to be a, a toxic mixture of changing consumer behaviour changing technology, globalization, and then often some kind of regulatory change. Either people will ignore a law or a law might change. Add those things together, and then you end up with this magic acidic recipe that can actually destroy businesses. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it in television, we've seen it in film, we've seen it in banking, we've seen it in property, we've seen it in lending, we've seen it in recruitment. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Go and speak to a recruiter about what they think about LinkedIn. More of that later, I'm mm-hmm. sure. You know, you can just see that you add those magic ingredients together, mm-hmm. things change, and they don't change in a nice way. Mm. For me, marketing services is ripe for that sort of change because if you see that everything about an increasing move towards transparency in businesses that have relied to a greater extent on opacity, the digital change is met with some resistance and or difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at businesses that go less from aggregating numbers to monetizing engagement, so a television station is a classic example of that. You know, you'd have your CPMs, you'd have your viewing figures, you could work out how much you would make. Whereas actually now it's much more about engagement. Yes, you played X Factor, and yes, that was out, but how do I know anybody watched it? Mm-hmm. What's the second screen? How do people go deeper? How do you go to multi-channel? It's that latter one that represents that, and in my view is that marketing services aren't doing as good a job in embracing digital, understanding multi-channel. And I think it's also trying to control every aspect Mm -hmm. of the marketing chain rather than curate it. I mean, it's sort of rather ironic if we take a step back. 2014, when we're talking about media Mm -hmm. and marketing, Mm -hmm. that marketing services companies... In this particular case, in my mind, I'm talking about large agencies, are, are still playing catch-up. But I think that when you've not had to change and you've been able to surf it for a while, I mean, there's a bit of a Jedi mind trick going on at the moment where the lovely Simon Daglish, who's the commercial director of, um, of ITV, is like, oh, yeah, YouTube, that's not a thing. And, yes, all these brands are trying to go online and do it themselves. And, you know, nothing beats telly and we're still the biggest. Like, really, Simon? Really? Is that really right? Are you really? Downton Abbey costs you £100,000 a minute. 
yet the right piece of content, shot dog running around in a park can have 20 million views in an hour. That when you're looking about the virality, when you're looking at advocacy, yes, you played that ad out, but was it fast-forwarded? Was it viewed? Was it ingested? Mm -hmm. Was someone staring at another screen when it was out there? This kind of denial I've seen before, mm -hmm. and you know, it's very cosy for ad agencies to say, yep, television's still the biggest aggregated audiences there are. True. If you believe that the audience is actually engaged, if you believe that they actually cut through, if you really believe that instead of being engendering loyalty, which is old marketing, instead of creating advocacy, which is new marketing, mm -hmm. or if you're looking for interactions rather than engagement, or you're looking for impressions rather than actions, these are big points which I have a feeling that marketing services is in a denial about because it suits them. Right, so what's the... What's, what for? How would you uh, correct us? Well, I mean, you know, there's no flies on very, very, very smart people like Sir Martin Sorrell and WPP and what's going on. But we're also seeing massive consolidation, which is what we saw in the 90s with regard to the music industry. As everyone saw that the synergies were getting difficult and we're seeing tectonic shifts now with Omnisys or whatever they're going to call it. <laughs> um, you know, so that's going to change the game. Um, by investing in new products and you know i think wpp are almost second to none in terms of productizing their offering yes we're focusing on data yes we're focusing on this and diversification and at least talking the language trying to build the biggest tent possible and able to do that that's great and again you will still have brands working with marketing services mm -hmm. but what are the services that they can actually do my view is that actually they should be there as curators they should then be pulling in from real data experts rather than just buying a design studio and saying, hey, everyone, we do digital. Their view, I think, really should be kind of the hub, a hub-and-spoke approach by saying we will be the hub and we will pull in the very best of the talent. They could be within the group, they could be without the group. You know, Some argue that the network system is fundamentally compromised because it means you're only going to choose from what's on your table mm -hmm. rather than doing the very best job for your client. I've not seen an agency turn around and say to its client, you know that really complex music brand partnership lighting download thing? We can't do that, but we know someone who can. Mm -hmm. That's not what they do. They call me and say, shit, we've told our client we can do all of this. Help, how do we do it? Mm -hmm. And then you end up with a kind of death by a thousand cuts and managing disappointment as opposed right. to actually working in a much more open, transparent Right, let's work on this together. We know the right experts. We're out of our comfort mm. zone here. Well, then wouldn't that argue that these tectonic movements are going in the wrong direction? Well, I mean, it's too early to say that they're going in the wrong direction, but it may be the wrong direction than everyone thinks that they're going in. Especially if they do it in that way. Correct. And, you know, where I'm already starting to see some brands that I would actually say that instead of relying on their agencies for those advice, they use them very much as implementers and as tools. A couple of my very big brand clients are like, no, no, the agencies do what we tell us. They are a functional service. The agencies don't think that. And they get very disappointed and sore when their brilliant, wonderful, creative ideas that they've mm -hmm. sent to five clients and hope that one have done aren't greeted with joy and whatever. But again, you know, are you there for the creative ideas? Are you there for the implementation? Are you there for the engagement? Are you there for the measurement? Are you there for the activation? The agency would say, I'm all of those things. Mm -hmm. The question I would have for marketing services, is that right? Are you finding in this particular market, I am seeing across the board, 
structures are failing and ecosystems are thriving? Does the ad agency networks, does the marketing services network look like an ecosystem Mm -hmm. or does it look like a big concrete tower? I have a feeling that most of them feel like the latter one. Mm -hmm. Not modular, immovable. I can take to any floor in this building, but as long as it's in this building. Is that what clients need? Is it that what they want? Is that fit for the purpose of what they may need and Mm. the distribution platforms they may need? I'm not so sure. Mm. And I think some of the biggest budgets, which of course are in media buying and with regard to big media as well, what is the measurement going to be? You know, we now have a major audiovisual advertising platform in YouTube who are now saying, if the ad is skipped in the first five seconds, you don't pay. What if someone in television has to do that? What if a massive brand says, all right, Mr. Multichannel, if my ad is is fast-forwarded, I don't pay. Because 50% of viewing is now on YouTube and I don't pay them. Why do I pay you? I don't know. I have a feeling it might be painful, though. That's why the subscription model that you were talking about before sounds attractive. All right, Cliff, I'd love to chat with you about lots of things because you are a man who has a a, a thought on pretty much everything I have on my page. Um, we, recently, uh, we, we uh, Samsung and Apple, they've duked it out. Then there was a $2 billion settlement that Apple won. Now their they're, they're newest war, um, it seems to be more about storytelling than uh, facts and figures. Are we in, I mean, the way I look at it, and with this Motorola app purchase, it seems to be it's more about the patents you own than the sexy appeal of the functionality and content that you're selling. What's your opinion on that? Um, I'll try and keep my thoughts brief on this because there are a number of aspects to it. Um, one of the reasons I like patents over copyright is patents have reached that pragmatic compromise that copyright hasn't. So if you and I set up a new music business, Universal Music or Sony Music does not have to license us their content and in fact they can use their negative veto to make things very very difficult for us it becomes very costly and expensive whereas patents have this notion of once something's been launched that any license cross licensing of patents have to be on fair reasonable and non-discriminatory terms so Nokia owns several patents in an iPhone Um, and Apple owes various patents. So the view is, in the world of patents, is that actually we have reached that pragmatic compromise where once I've launched my thing, yes, you can license my tech on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. So to Apple's view is that what Samsung had done was broken the code of conduct. It's not that they didn't want anyone launching a tablet or a tablet that looked like theirs. What they didn't want someone to do was deny the patent And they're more than happy to grant the license and get paid for it. Mm -hmm. So it's an economic fight, whereas some people are saying, oh, Apple's trying to stop everyone, and it's really... It's not. It's not saying that. It's saying, no, no, you are not playing by the rules. If you've ripped us off, Mm. the game is you pay. All right, so then it it sounds like it also could become a question of which jurisdiction we're talking about in order for this to win. So do you think that they are aided better by the uh, law, the court of law in America than in Korea? Well, the laws with regard to America are very different anyway. I mean, they've got the right to... They're kind of different in everything. 
bare arms and arm bears arms and, and arms. whatever they can do. Um, and also there are certain things over there that are patentable that aren't patentable over here. So concepts and business models you know, can be patented over there. Whereas in the UK, for example, it's got to be a scientific invention, capable of industrial application, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, there are there's always going to be a kind of a, you pick your jurisdiction. And there's also a sense of some, um, there's veiled threats that there's all about xenophobia, that, you know, Koreans aren't being, uh, don't have the home advantage under California law, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That won't change, and that won't change by way of this one. But for me, I see it as very much a kind of economic thing, which is, if Apple were trying to stop anybody else launching patents, which is what some people are huffing about, mm-hmm. then I would agree that that is somehow against the game. Because Apple, too, they license in technology. A lot of their screen technology is licensed from Samsung. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not that Apple are trying to have it both ways. They're trying to say, no, it's consistent. Mm-hmm. You rip off our patent, you pay. Mm-hmm. You, do, you rip off our patent and don't pay, we come after you. Mm-hmm. And we want our share. I wanted to switch just to, you mentioned Google a little earlier, and uh, so in the in the realm of legal thoughts, Google Glass was is now available for $1,500, and, and there are some new videos that go around showing how people react when pe- other people are wearing Google Glass. What's the legal framework around Google Glass? I mean, where are we going? Well, um, I, I need to, I will hold my tongue on, you know, some of, some of Google's practices, which I struggle with. Um, I'd much rather say we are a disruptor that can often break things before we make things, rather than going around saying we're not evil and we're just lovely and, you know, they've now finally admitted now and now put on the terms of their um, conditions for Gmail that they scan every email and scan every message. Which is why it takes so long to load up anyway. Indeed, and that actually that, you know, they denied that they went around taking the Wi-Fi codes and they denied they were going around and mapping the Earth and they saying they were scanning every book on Earth just to make it easier for everyone to find and, you know, data privacy. And it's, you know, I'd much rather it was just open and said, look, we just do disruptive things. We break things at times, but actually we're trying to do the right thing rather than the hokey kind of, hey, man, we're just doing it for everyone's good. Um, I wish they were just a bit more open and honest Mm -hmm. about all of that. Mm -hmm. With regard to glass, glass is a very interesting iteration of wearable technologies, which are a thing. And they're going to be a thing, and they're going to be a thing forever. I have seen some developers who are developing apps for Google Glass that allow architects to be able to do site visits and map their plans against the fenestration of the particular building in front of them. Mm-hmm. I've seen apps that um, surgeons can use mm-hmm. in order to be, have people talk in their ear, or indeed above their ear, more accurately, to help talk them through there and see screenshots of what a organ should look like. I could see that a barrister in court can have notes fed to them with regard to a wearable technology. It's a heads-up display. So I think that of that aspect of it as well, the fact it looks a bit odd and it looks a bit weird, you know, now it's absolutely fine for people to take photos on the tube. Whereas well, if it, well, it sort of is. I mean, if, if I do that, if I take my iPhone and I demonstrate, you know, explicitly look like I'm taking a photograph of a stranger, I can get some strange looks. And in other countries, I can get... Well, you know, clearly that's you know, take away pure spirits. Indeed, but the whole idea of you waving a camera, waving a camera around that you may or may not use, with you know 
however many megapixels and a Carl Zeiss lens and a full-on flash is, is entirely normal now. Um, glass is interesting because you're not entirely sure, yes, there's a little red light, but, you know, what if someone goes into a changing room? Well, you could say, if you mm. were Google, so you could do that with the phone right now. Yeah. You could have it in your top pocket with the camera out, so who knows? Absolutely. So is it doing something of itself that can't be done? No. I think where I do struggle a little bit more, and it is a bit more, um, and I've hopefully put out there my slight Google prejudice, uh, for which I hereby confess, on this Easter weekend, um, is what it does in terms of the combination of the data. If it's measuring what I can see, what I'm searching, whom I've emailed, where I am on Screep Map, have I summoned Uber, the inferences that can be drawn from all of those data points versus if I've got Nest and work out whether I'm at home or whether I'm cold, it's the inferences that can be drawn, which Google have some form in terms of monetizing in unique ways that I'm probably more concerned about. Mm -hmm. Google knows where I am if you've got an Android phone. It knows what you're thinking if you're updating your posts. It knows what you're emailing. It knows where you are, and it knows a huge amount about you. But if you look at the last things, and it probably knows what you're thinking Mm -hmm. because of what... Maybe more than you do. (laughs) Maybe more than you do. It certainly knows that for purchasing decisions because that's its business, right? But if the last thing it can do is that it can fill in what you can see or where you're seeing or what images you snap of a particular issue, be it a news story or whether or not it's somewhere where someone else shouldn't be. And it's that I have an issue with. And if you can walk in and see little dots of, hey, you can see which other Googlers are in the area, that person hasn't given you permission to know where you are and how you do. So it comes into this whole issue about what I think is coming across is the hokey Californian view of privacy, mm-hmm. which is it should be like carrying guns. It's about freedom <laughs> and guns don't kill people and Facebook doesn't kill people. It's people Forget that do that. Forget about your privacy, just get over it. Versus the continental European view of privacy. Um, a couple of years ago, I was at South by Southwest, and I was speaking to someone from a major social network, and he was like, what is it with you Europeans and this privacy and this data? And, God, just get with it. Just get with it. I mean, what is it about the French and the Germans and the Italians that are really upset about this? And I looked the guy in the eye and said, you really don't know? What? So well, think back, mm, I don't know, 50, 60 years, when the government, if the government knew where you were and what you were thinking and what you were doing, and if you were on the wrong list, what that that mean? And this individual, the blood drained from his face. Mm -hmm. I believe from his surname, I inferred that he was of Jewish extraction. And he hadn't made the link of what happens when that information goes in the hands of a totalitarian state Mm -hmm. and why the Germans have got such an issue Mm -hmm. with Google Mm -hmm. on many fronts or why the French have a certain view with regard to privacy, Mm. or why the Italians, or why the Spanish, or why anyone who's lived under a totalitarian state and understands what can happen when that amount of information is concentrated somewhere. So we are, and I just saw a headline earlier today, I think the German minister says that we're on a collision course with Google with regard to privacy, and Mm. I think that's the best way to put it, Mm. is it'll be interesting to see which one wins out. Mm -hmm. So... 
Greenwald is uh, based in Berlin, and and um, do you uh, what do you think about the Pulitzer Prize being awarded to the folks that uh, helped uh, Snowden and, and Greenwald? Well, I mean, away from the morality and the ethics of it, I mean, the American government has to maintain a position that leaking secrets are bad, because if it becomes open house on leaking secrets, it, you know, even Obama, you know left-leaning, Nobel Prize-winning, etc., etc., sort of anti-torture, sort of anti-Guantanamo, sort of liberal. He has to hold a certain position as commander-in-chief mm-hmm. that leaking, if you're in the army and you've got sensitive information, giving it away for whatever reason is a bad thing. So I understand why the American government has to maintain that position. Mm-hmm. History will be very kind to Snowden because of what was uncovered. Other leaders, shocked. You know, mm-hmm. stories that the NSA are monitoring every Skype conversation, every phone call, the ad network that serves angry birds, etc., etc. We didn't really know any of this stuff. And the same is true with regard to people like The Guardian, you know, who published a lot of the Assange stuff. Um, weirdly, Assange fell out with The Guardian because they were curating what they were releasing, mm-hmm. because they were saying, no, no, we can't possibly release this information. This could put these spies in danger. And Assange was, no, I want it all out there. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, he also wants to control every aspect of how he's betrayed in the media. So I don't quite know how you reconcile those ones. A little bit of a control freak. Going back onto um, privacy and, and back in the corporate space, uh, I worked with Samsung, and so I got a chance to go see their digital city, and, and then you have these cultures of, of total secrecy, like Apple, about all the things that they're doing. How do you see that? Because in the end of the day, we're talking about, well, the need of a commander-in-chief to keep the secrecy. And uh, there's sort of like, sort of, and, but not everything. And, um, and in companies, this, this, it's, it seems really unhealthy, this level of secrecy that one has to have when you go into digital city. You get stripped almost, you know, and I, you know, forgot, forget about going into the Google Glass. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, um, corporate espionage, you know, not for the sake of control, as it were, you know, it's, it's a bad thing. I mean, you know, if someone, I remember a few years ago, a handset manufacturer I worked for, someone lost their entire product roadmap in a bar in Barcelona and it was picked up by a competitor. And that was a really bad thing. Mm-hmm. Sure. It spoilt their whole roadmap, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I suspect that actually Steve Jobs also, he felt that a lot of it was about the magic. You know, if the magician unveils his, you go, ooh, secret, you ooh and ah, if you see it looks like magic. Mm -hmm. And if you realize that, you know, the first iPhone, uh, brilliant book on um, Jonathan Ive called Icon, Mm -hmm. which explains the device that Steve was holding for the first iPhone was basically stitched together and didn't really work for his presentation. Yeah. It was a beautiful trick, mm. but and then he made everyone make sure that it actually delivered right. by the time it was shipped. So I think for all of those reasons, that sort of secrecy is understandable. Totally. Um, on the flip side, though, I think that Apple appear to be... I mean, now Foxconn or some Chinese developer or someone is now leaking every part. I saw every aspect of the, fi- the 5S... I saw every layer of it on on the 5C, and there's the new ones you'll have seen now of the 6, and Mm -hmm. they have the different contract, and they all Mm -hmm. turn out to be right. And weirdly, what was interesting was um, at the last Apple keynote, 
Phil Schiller said, was explaining the design of something. He said, you've probably seen all these online, which is cool. You know, and his tongue was in his cheek, but actually even to be able to iterate that, I think things are changing Mm -hmm. somewhat Mm -hmm. and people are realising actually it's a big old world. Mm -hmm. But it is a bit of a shame when you know exactly what's being announced at any particular time. There's no more reveal, no more exciting. So um, I know time is short, so um, last question was you're a lawyer, you are on social media. If there's one group within most companies that's the most reticent to go on to social media, it's usually the legal department, they're up there, no, 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 but you you do it. Tell us why, and, and do you, is this sort of thing you recommend for others to use as well? I think that social media is an extraordinary amplification of your thinking, your being, your person, your personality, your corporate branding. It is like everything about context and appropriateness. So Facebook is not a great page for a law firm to be. <laughs> you know, um, Snapchat, even less so, or Grindr or Tinder or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, so the idea of, again, sort of mashing all of social media together is entirely inappropriate. You know, Facebook is about your friends. Twitter is broadcast. It's the new broadcast. And if you use it in that particular way to sound out and send a message out in the right tone, in the right voice, and don't tweet drunk and understand which persona and which brand is actually tweeting, it's a fantastic broadcast platform. It's viral, it's embeddable, it's out there. Um, For lawyers, the most important piece of um, social media is something like LinkedIn. For the first time ever, you can see what all of your clients and all your rivals are doing in real time. For me... The number of people who reached out to me via LinkedIn and the purchasing decision is not a million miles away from Amazon. You go to Amazon, you put in the product, you look at the product, you check it's the right one, you have a quick look at the price and then you immediately look at the user reviews. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. You ignore the blurb mm-hmm. in the yeah, middle because just, just a bunch of whatever. That's your law firm website. By way of analogy, well, of course. <laughs> right, you know, we're the biggest, we're the best, we're the this, we're the that. Of course, you're going to say that. Yeah. Who do you know? Who says that you're great? Yeah. Who else do you know that I know? So you get a form of kind of yes, yes on the first two, which are very mechanical. Why, and who about the community says this about you? And I will more often than not get an email saying, "Hey, you're really good friends with Denzel. Let's do this." Oh, I've seen your thing on LinkedIn. Right. Please, can we do this? The idea that people would email you out of the blue and say, right, let's get working together as a legal professional would have been fanciful years ago. Mm -hmm. So people who don't understand what their profile is, what the recommendations are about, what the voting preferences at the bottom are, Mm -hmm. making sure that your full background is there, that your full connections are there, Mm -hmm. that you're connected to your own partners, that you've got your right privacy settings Mm -hmm. in place... A tool like that, a social media platform like that, mm. for a professional or for a marketer or for a CEO, is extraordinary. And particularly if you're unhappy in your own role, it'll probably be the first place that any recruiter, mm. so anyone looking to change their roles or understanding what the state of the market mm. is or looking at it as well, it's such a powerful platform. Well, and the advice I have is uh, start working on it now and anticipate being unhappy some other day. So you don't do is to turn around. All right, Cliff, you got to go. How can people track you down, follow you, uh, get in touch with you? Um, Google me, Cliff Fluet, F-L-U-E-T. Look me up on LinkedIn. Hook me up on Twitter, F-F-L-I-C. Um, or reach out in any way that feels comfortable. Um, love meeting interesting people and uh, none more interesting than Minter. Thanks, Cliff, for being on the show. Have a great day. 
Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Internet Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please rate it in iTunes, and don't forget to click the handy Facebook like button or to tweet it out. In the meantime, please come join the conversation at The Mindset, or catch me on Twitter at M-D-I-A-L. Happy trails. Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast.